All right, good evening. It is a, a blessing to be with you. Merry Christmas to everyone. Merry Christmas. And uh, isn't, it, isn't it great to have Lon here? Let's give Lon another round of applause. He, uh, he, he, he reached out to me this week and said, hey, if you need me to be there, I will be there. I'm like, man, we need you to be here. We want you to come and give us an update and such a blessing to have Lon with us here tonight. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will. I'm the pastor here at Tri-Village. And uh, if you're visiting us here for the first time, we are so glad you are here. Uh, we hope that you enjoy your experience. And we really hope that you come back on one of our you know, morning services and uh, continue to attend. We would love to have you be a part of our church. And uh, what we're doing tonight, um, this evening, and if I say this morning, I apologize because I'm so used to saying morning, so I might say morning here and there, but um, what we're doing this evening is we are continuing our Advent series entitled Rejoice, Rejoice. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Isaiah. We are going to be in Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 9, all right? So if you have your Bibles, turn to the Old Testament, right around the middle of your Old Testament, and we're looking at Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 9. And specifically, the verses we are going to look at is Isaiah chapter 8, um, verse 21, through Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. All right? Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21, through Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. All right? That's what we're doing. Now, what we're going to see in this passage, we're going to look at this passage under, under two headings, okay? So this passage is, is, is several verses that we're going to look at, but what we're going to see is there's essentially there's, there's two ways, two angles by which we will be looking at this passage, if you can put those two truths up. The two headings that we're going to look at um, and we're going to use to look at this passage is we are going to look at the need for Christmas, and then after we look at the need for Christmas, we are going to conclude by looking at the gift of Christmas, all right? So we're going to look at the need for it, and then we are going to look at the gift of it, all right? So Isaiah chapter 8 through Isaiah chapter 9. So the first truth that we're going to see uh, tonight is we are going to see the need for Christmas. So look what it says in Isaiah chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, there's going to be here on the screen behind me. And look what it says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21. It says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And, th and they will be thrust into utter Darkness, And then verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Those people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And then the second half of verse 2 says, On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So, the first truth that we see here in this passage uh, is we see the need for Christmas. Christmas is not a luxury. Christmas is not a want. Christmas is not an addition, but Christmas is a necessity. And so that's the first truth that we see here. We see the need for Christmas. And according to this passage, there are three reasons for why Christmas is needed. There are three reasons why Christmas is needed. One reason why Christmas is needed is because, of our, uh, um, is because of our conduct. The second reason is because of our condition. And then the third reason is because of our confidence, okay? So the three reasons why Christmas is a necessity is because of our conduct, our condition, and our confidence, all right? 
So the, here's the thing. The, 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 so you could look at it as three reasons why Christmas is needed, or you can look at it from another angle. You can look at it as the three symptoms that prove our neediness. So these are the three symptoms that if you display these symptoms, it means that you need Christmas, okay? So our conduct, our, our, uh, our condition, and our confidence. So let's begin with the first one. The first, the first symptom of our neediness is our conduct. Where do I get that? Well, if you look at the passage, look what it says here with me. If you look at verse 21, in verse 21 it says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And then if you jump to verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And then it says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So listen, the first reason why Christmas is needed is because of our conduct. And the word roam, the word walking, and the word uh, uh, living all have to do with our conduct, all have to do with our behavior. They all have to do with our pattern of life, our lifestyle, okay? So this is really important. This is really important because one of the things that we assume when Christmas times comes up is that Christmas, t- Christmas is a luxury. Christmas is a blessing, but it really wasn't that necessary. But according to the passage, the first reason why Christmas is absolutely vital and necessary is because of our behavior, is because of our conduct. The word Rome, if you look back, if you go back to chapter eight, the word Rome there uh, in verse 20, in verse 20 uh, let me see where it is, 21, the word Rome there, and when we think of Rome, we think of someone walking around aimlessly, right? But in Hebrew, the word Rome means to travel down a particular path. So it's a pattern of life. So it's not something you just do once. It's something that you do again and again and again and again. Then if you go to chapter 9, verse 2, look what it says in chapter 9, verse 2. He starts to describe to us that these people were walking in darkness. And then it says in the second half of verse 2, they were living in the land of deep darkness. And so what you see is that our conduct is not just it's that we did something wrong once, but, but the word walking means a manner of life. It is a lifestyle. It is a continual behavior, a continual pattern. And according to the passage, we were walking in darkness. And the word darkness in the Bible is not just the lights being off, but it's wickedness, it's ignorance, it's pride. So according to the passage, before Christmas, we were walking in darkness. We were walking in ignorance. We were walking in wickedness, okay? So our conduct in light of this passage is not good. It's not good conduct. And then not only is it that we're walking in darkness, but it says that we were living in the land of deep darkness. The word living there means to dwell somewhere, to to remain somewhere. So according to this passage, we, before Christmas, the reason why Christmas is so needed is that we were living in the land of deep darkness. And the phrase there, deep darkness, is the same phrase that's used in Psalm 23, where it says that uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, deep darkness means the shadow of death, okay? And, in, and for those of you who know who Coolio is, Coolio told us about this, okay? As I walk through the valley of the shallow of death, right? He, he told us about this. You should have listened to Coolio back in the 90s. He tried to tell you about this, people, okay? So, so according to the passage, the first reason why we need Christmas is because of our conduct, is because of our pattern of life. And here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. Because darkness is a pattern, because darkness is a lifestyle, a lot of us, we've been in darkness for so long that we don't even know that we're in darkness anymore. You know how when you've been sitting in a room for a really long time and it's a dark room, the lights are off and your eyes have adjusted to the darkness and you really don't know how dark it is until someone turns the lights on on you, right? And all of a sudden the lights come on and you're like, oh my gosh, like why would you do that to me, right? 
according to the passage, we walk in the darkness. We were born in the darkness. We've lived in the darkness for so long that we don't even know we're in darkness anymore. The darkness has affected how we think, how we act, how we feel. So the first reason why Christmas is absolutely necessary is because of our conduct, is because of our behavior, is because of our lifestyle, okay? The second reason why Christmas is needed is not just because of our conduct, but it's also because of our condition. And look what it says um, here in, I'm gonna reread verse 21 for you. He tells us not just about our conduct, but he tells us about our condition. In verse 21, he says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. They, when they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God, okay? And then in verse 22, it says, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and fearful gloom. See, so the second reason why we need Christmas is not just because of our behavior, it's not just because of our, 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 our conduct, but it's because of our inner condition. The passage says that we are distressed, and then later on it says that we are in gloom. The word distressed, it means to be in anxiety, to be in deep anxiety, to be in deep anguish, to be in deep tribulation. That's what the word distress means in Hebrew. And then if you look at the word gloom, the word gloom, it means to be sad. It means to be discouraged. It means to be despondent. So according to the passage, the reason why you and I need Christmas is not just because of our external behavior, but because of our internal condition. We are broken not just on the outside, we are broken on the inside. So the solution that God sends can't just be someone who brings behavior modification, but it has to be someone who brings inner transformation because because we are wicked both on the outside and on the inside. That's how broken and wicked we are today. And so if you're sitting here this morning, I mean, sorry, I told you I was going to say this morning. If you're sitting here this evening and Christmas is just an addition to you, addition for you, if Christmas is just a luxury for you, then you really don't understand how bad the situation is. Then you really don't understand how sinful you are. We don't need a life coach. We don't need someone to just give you a few steps on how to get better because our problem is not just our conduct. Our problem is our condition. You see, and this is what's interesting. One of the things that Christians are accused of all the time is that Christians have blind faith, right? They go to Christians like, oh, Christians are all about blind faith and false optimism. But if you look at the passage, what's so interesting about this passage is that Christians in light of scripture are the people who are most honest about the problem. No other world religion will tell you about the problem the way Christianity tells you about the problem. See, other religions tell you, oh, you need to change your behavior, and so this guru or this wise person will tell you what to do instead. Christianity shows up and says, listen, not only is it your conduct that's messed up, it's your inner condition that's messed up, and so your solution has to come from the outside because it can't come from the inside. That's what the Bible is telling us here, okay? Okay. So the first reason why Christmas is absolutely necessary is because of our conduct. The second reason is because of our condition. And then the third reason, according to this passage, why Christmas is absolutely necessary is not only because of our conduct and our condition, but because of our confidence. The reason why Christmas is necessary, the reason why Christmas is needed is because we have placed our confidence in something smaller than Jesus. Okay? Now, where do I get that? Let me reread verse 21 and 22. This is probably, out of all the three reasons why Christmas is needed, this might be the most important reason. Look what it says in verse 21 again. It says, distressed and hungry, listen to this, this is human beings, right? They will roam through the land. When they are famished, listen to this, they will become enraged and looking upward, which is good, right? So that's good. So the human beings are having problems, and, and, and so in order to, to solve the problem, they're looking upward towards God. That's what we want. That's good news, right? 
But look what the passage says after the comma. It says, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. So they, human beings, we look upward not to praise God, but to curse God. And then it says, then they will look, instead of looking towards God because they've cursed him, verse 22, they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So listen, the third reason why Christmas is an absolute necessity is because of our confidence. If you're sitting here this morning and you have, a, again, if you're sitting here this evening and you have a pulse, your confidence is in something smaller than Jesus. And the reason why I know that, even though I don't know all of you, is because that's what the passage is telling us. That we have, we have looked upward, not to praise God, but to curse God. And instead of looking to God and placing our confidence in him, we have turned around and have looked towards the earth and placed our confidence in creation instead of in the creator. Now, here's what's really interesting about the word enraged and the word curse. The word enraged in Hebrew, it means to be furious with someone. It means to be provoked by someone. It means to be angry with someone, right? That's what the word enraged means. But the word that I find so interesting in this passage that I really didn't understand until I looked at it in Hebrew is the word curse. Because it says, they will be enraged and they will curse their king and their God. Now, when we use the word curse, what we think of is we think of punishing someone. We think of being angry with someone and calling out, you know, condemnation on someone. That's what we think when we think of curse, right? But here's what's interesting about the Hebrew. The word curse in Hebrew, it doesn't mean to, to, to yell at someone or to punish someone or to condemn someone. The word curse in Hebrew, it means to lower your view of someone. That's what it means. It means to minimize your view of someone. It means to lessen your view of someone. It literally means to trivialize someone, okay? So some of you are sitting here tonight and you're like, wait, 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 wait. I'm not angry at God. You can't accuse me of being angry at God. I have no problem with God. Well, according to the passage, the way that you know you have a problem with God and the way that you know that you need Christmas is not because your anger is manifested in rage towards God, but your anger is manifested in indifference towards God. See, you know you've cursed God, not when you're angry at him, but when you don't even think about him anymore. You see, when I'm sitting with someone and I'm counseling a couple or a marriage and, and, and the wife or the, the husband tells me I hate my spouse, as, as strong as the word hate is, I know that there's still hope in the relationship. Why? Because hate is the opposite of love. And so that means there's still emotion there, right? We can fix it. We can redirect that emotion and make it healthy. But when someone tells me that they're totally indifferent to their spouse, when someone tells me that their wife, their, their, their wife or their husband means nothing to them anymore, they don't think about them anymore, they're not on their radar anymore, that's when you know a marriage is about to be destroyed. It's not hate that's the worst case scenario. It's indifference, okay? And so the passage says that we are so broken and so wicked that in our anger towards God, we have responded to him by cursing him, by lowering our view of him, by trivializing him. So some of you are like, I'm not mad at God. Well, of course you're not mad at God. You haven't thought about God since last Christmas. How are you going to be mad at someone you don't think about? Right? So you know if, 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 if you go Monday through, through Saturday and the only time you think about God is on Sunday or once a year when you come to church, then what that means is you are, you, you are so far from God that you cursed God a long time ago. You're totally indifferent to him. He means absolutely nothing to you. 
That's why the word in Hebrew, uh, the, we talked about this in the past, but the word glory, the word worship, uh, uh, sorry, the word honor and glory in the Bible, the, Greek, the Hebrew word is kabod, which means weightiness, something of weight. So when we give God glory, it means that God has weight in our lives. But the reality is for a lot of us, there are several things that are more weightier in our lives than God is. There are several things that are more central to our lives than God is. And so maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not angry at God. Again, this morning. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're, and you're, and you're not angry at God. But, but the reason you know you are is not because you're, 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 you hate God, but because you haven't thought about God in months. And God has no, God has no the, your relationship with God has no implications on how you spend your money, on how you spend your time, on what you watch, on what you do. And you know what the sad thing is? As we sit here tonight, we, we, we keep talking to the people who are outside coming in. But here's the reality. Many Christians live like if Jesus never showed up. Many Christians walk around and they have the same fears, the same hopes, the same level of self-esteem as all the people in their neighborhood who don't know Jesus do. And Christians live as if Jesus never showed up. And Christians live with just as much indifference towards God as the people who don't know God. How are we compelling at all to people if we behave like Jesus never showed up? Okay? So, 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 so let, me, let, me, let me summarize the need. The reason why Christmas is needed is the first reason is because of our conduct. The second reason is because of our condition. And then the third reason, according to the passage, is because we have placed our confidence in something smaller than God. And so hopefully what we can all agree to by now is that we have a problem. And that Christmas is not just a luxury. Christmas is a necessity. Christmas is a necessity for every single person in here with a pulse. Okay, so now that we understand the need for Christmas, what I want to do with the rest of our time tonight is I want to look at the gift of Christmas. We've seen the need of Christmas, and now I want to look at the gift of Christmas. And to do that, I'm going to reread verse, verse 1 through verse 7. Look, if you could get, put the verses back up. Here, here's what it says in, in, in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. And here is where we see the gift that God has given us. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So now, by this time in the message, right, we, we have seen the need for Christmas. And what we see here in verses 1 through 7 is we see a description of the gift of Christmas. God has seen our need, and as a result of our multi-layered, multi-faceted need, he has sent us a multi-layered, multi-faceted gift and solution to our problem and to our need, okay? 
And what we see in this passage, which is, I just think is just so uh, uh, beautiful, if you go back to verse 6 of chapter 9, he gives us a four-part description of who this gift will be. A four-part description of who this gift will be. So he calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, I'm going to unpack each one of these for a few minutes. And the reason why I want to do that is because I need you to understand just how incredible, just how multifaceted this gift that God gives, gave us is. The first thing that he says that this gift will be is that this gift will be a wonderful counselor. Now, the word wonderful in, in, in Hebrew, it means supernatural. Supernatural. In other words, this counselor that God is sending is different from any counselor you've ever met with because every counselor you've ever met with is a natural human counselor, right? But this counselor is a supernatural counselor. Now, the word counselor is very interesting because the word counselor can mean one of two things. The first thing that the word counselor can mean is the way we think of a counselor, right? When you think of a counselor, you think of someone you go, you sit down with, you share your struggles with, you share your story with, you, stare, you, you share your fears with, and then they help, you, they help you figure out how to navigate life, right? So that's one way that the counselor word means. But then and we'll look at the second way in a second. But let me look at this first way. What we're told in this passage is that Jesus, this gift, is a wonderful counselor. He is a supernatural counselor. Now, here's what's amazing about that. Because he is a supernatural counselor, when Jesus sits with you, this child that God is sending, he sits with you. And, you know, you know at the end of the day, a, a human counselor can only help you as much as you allow them to help you. Because if you don't give them all the information, they can't really do what they have to do, right? You can actually hinder a human counselor by how much information you share with them. But what's amazing about this counselor is that this counselor knows all of your fears. He knows all of your hopes. He knows all of your dreams. He knows you fully and yet loves you fully. And so he's a counselor like no other counselor you've ever met with. He's the only counselor who knows you better than you do. That's incredible. And so if you're sitting here tonight and you feel forgotten and you feel misunderstood and you feel lonely, God has sent you a counselor who understands you, who knows you, who cares for you, who loves you, who, who, who steps into your weakness, who doesn't just look down on your weakness, he steps into your weakness. That's one of the things the word counselor means. But you know what the other thing the word, the word counselor means? It also means advisor. You know, one of the things that kings in those days would have is they would have counselors, they would have advisors, political advisors who would come alongside them and tell them what to do. So they would have to make big decisions and their advisors would come alongside them and say, I think you should do this, 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 and this. That's what the word also means. So what it's saying about this gift that God's given us is that Jesus is going to be the ultimate advisor who's going to show up with the ultimate plan and his plan is going to be totally unexpected. So when he shows up, he's not coming just to be your co-pilot and your life coach and your buddy, but he's coming not only to tell you what your greatest problems are, but to offer solutions to those problems and you have to take them. See, we can't just take part part of the gift and leave the other part out he fully understands you has a plan for what you should do about it but if you if you want the understanding part you need the commanding part too okay that's what that's what the word counselor means he has a plan he has a vision not just for the word glo the world globally but for you personally and if you going if you're going to take him into your life you can't choose which part of parts of your life he can control he has a plan and a vision for every part of your life. And you either take all of him or you take none of him. Okay? So the first thing this gift will be is he will be a wonderful counselor. 
The second thing, according to the passage that he will be, is he will be a mighty God. And the word, the word mighty there, it means strong. It means powerful. Uh, it means a champion or someone who's brave. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. That Jesus, listen to this, he's not just a, a, a counselor that can step into your weakness, but he is a God who has the power to do something about the weakness. So he's weak enough to relate to you, but he's powerful enough to direct you because he's God. That's what we were talking about a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the story, or last week when we were looking at the story of Mary. The amazing thing about the, 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 the Christmas story is that the same God that said there's a baby coming is the same God that's the baby. That's crazy. He's mighty God. You see, because I've tried to counsel many people in my day, right? I sit down with people and I give them all the counsel in the world. And sometimes I can tell, even as I'm talking to the person, oh, that person isn't going to do anything about this. Like, they're listening, but I can tell I didn't say what they wanted me to say, and so they're just going to ignore it and do whatever they want anyways. But not only is he a wonderful counselor, so he gives good advice, better advice than anyone will ever give you, but he's also God, so he has the power to carry out that, those plans and that vision for your life. He's powerful enough to do it. So he's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. Then the, the third one is a weird one, right? Because it says he is an everlasting father. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that there's father, son, Holy Spirit, right? One God, three persons. So, so how is the son a father? That's weird, right? But here's why it's not weird. Because what it actually says in Hebrew, it says father of eternity. That's what it actually says in the Hebrew. It says father of eternity. And in the Hebrew, the word father doesn't just mean the person who is, you know, who you're related to, your paternal, that paternal relationship, but the word father can also mean originator. It can mean founder of something. So you know how, how, how Henry Ford is the father of the Model T? It doesn't mean that Henry Ford had a bunch of babies, of like little, little Model Ts, right? That's not what that means. It means he's the originator of the Model T. He is the founder of the Model T. And so that's why later on in the New Testament, Satan is described as the father of lies. He is the originator of lies. It's not like he has an actual paternal relationship with lying. It's that he is the originator. He is the source. So what this passage is saying when it says that Jesus is the everlasting father, he is the father of eternity, it means that Jesus is the originator of everlasting life. He is the source. So if you're looking for eternal life, there's only one source, and that source is Jesus. He is the originator. He is the source. Okay? He is the founder. That's why in, in the New Testament it says he is the firstborn among the dead. If you're looking for, for eternal life, there's only one place to find it, and that place is in Jesus. Okay? But what I love about that concept of father is that as you look at the list, it, it goes from, for, if you, remember what the word counselor, the word counselor is a political advisor. So it goes from this very general title, right? A, a political advisor. And then it starts getting more and more personal as we go. It goes from, it goes from counselor to mighty God, and all of a sudden it gets very personal with Father. A Father provides for you. A Father cares for you. A Father loves you. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does as the founder and originator of, our, of everlasting life. And then, look at this. Look at how he ends. He says he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and then he is the Prince of Peace. Now here's what's interesting. Th th that phrase, prince of peace, is actually very paradoxical. And here's why. Because the word prince in Hebrew, it's a military officer. So, so a prince in the Hebrew is someone who would lead an army into war, right? But according to the passage, 
The person who's bringing peace is a military officer. So it's almost like you see what we deserve by the word prince, but then you see what we don't deserve by the word peace. The military officer brings a message of peace to us. It's like what we looked at a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the shepherds. And in the shepherds, it says that a, a, a heavenly host of angel, and angels show up. And, and the, 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 that phrase host, it's an army. So an army of angels is singing a song of peace. An army is singing about peace and a, a military officer is bringing a message of peace. So you see what we deserve with the word prince, but then you see what we don't deserve with the word peace. Isn't that beautiful? And here's what's crazy about that word peace. When, when, when we think of peace, the, the English word for peace isn't strong enough to communicate what, what the Hebrew was trying to say here. Because in the Hebrew, the word there is shalom. He is the prince of shalom. Now, when we think of peace, here's how we tend to define peace. Peace is the absence of conflict, right? That's what we think of. So when we think of peace, we think of peace being the absence of something else. If there's no conflict, we have peace. But in the Bible, peace is so much more than just the absence of something. Okay, in the Bible, peace is not just trans tranquility. Peace is, peace is prosperity. Peace is flourishing. Peace is well-being. That's what the word peace in the Bible means. So he comes not just to take you out of the negative back to zero. He comes to take you from, from the negative into the millions. He came to give you wholeness. The word for shalom means wholeness. It means completeness. And so if you're sitting here tonight and you're struggling with, with chaos, you're struggling with, with conflict, with, with maybe in, in a relationship or, or with God or with your past, or, or you're struggling with just inner turmoil, Jesus shows up not just to remove the conflict, but to give you shalom. Not just to put you back at zero, but to take you to a place that you've never been in, to bring you wholeness and completeness in a way that only he can bring it. I think that's such a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gift that God is sending to you and to me. And so what we see here in this passage is that God sends a multifaceted uh, uh, solution to our multifaceted problem. So we see the need for Christmas, and our need is great, but by God's grace, we receive the gift of Christmas, and the gift is greater. That's what the Bible is telling us, okay? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know the thing that, that most makes me laugh about Christmas? That it's the one Christian holiday that the world embraces. Right? So Good Friday, none of your secular uh, co-workers are celebrating Good Friday. Right? None of your secular co-workers are celebrating Easter. Why? Because those are confrontational. And those call me a sinner. And I, I, those make me feel bad about myself. And I don't want to feel bad about myself. But Christmas, everybody loves Christmas. But here's the thing. I think the reason why people love Christmas is because they don't really understand the Christmas message. Because I would argue that Christmas is just as confrontational and just as controversial as Good Friday and Easter. Think about this. Let me put it to you this way. I heard a pastor put it this way, and I think it was so good. If I'm sitting upstairs in my house, right? Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm living in my house, and I have two floors, and I'm upstairs. And my daughters are downstairs arguing. And I hear them arguing, they're not sharing a toy. I'm like, girls, calm down. They don't calm down. Girls, please share. They don't share. Girls, I'm going to come down. They don't stop. At some point, I got to come down. But listen, when I come down, 
that's not a testimony to their greatness. That's a testimony to their sinfulness. Okay? So, so the whole Old Testament was God sending prophets and sending his word telling us to calm down. He was upstairs and he was telling us to shut up. He was telling us to, to, to get your act together. Okay? Listen, the fact that God had to come downstairs, that's not a good thing. That doesn't mean, that means we're bad. That doesn't mean we're great. That means we are sinful. You see, so what Christmas does is Christmas shows us the greatness of God and the sinfulness of man. That's what Christmas does. Because the fact that God had to come down shows you that we are sinners. That's what it shows us, that we couldn't fix it. That the solution had to come from outside of us because we couldn't be the solution to the problem. See, the reason why the world embraces Christmas is because the world doesn't understand Christmas. The Christmas is all about God's greatness and our sinfulness. God had to come down because we couldn't fix the problem because we were the problem. And so God has to come down to fix the problem, which is us. He didn't come just to fix a broken society. He came to fix broken individuals. See, that's why in the passage he talks about how a son, a son, a son is born, a child is born, and a son is given. The reason why the word given is there is because it's all about God's grace. It doesn't say a son, a son is earned, because we didn't earn him. It's all about grace. See, listen, the, Christmas is not about what you've earned. Christmas is about what God has given us in Jesus. That's what it's all about. It's not about what you achieve, it's about what you receive. That's how it works. That's what Christmas is all about. And so if you're sitting here today and you think that Christmas is a good message about how great you are and about, about uh, you know, a light FM and all these Christmas about white Christmas, then you don't get it. Because what Christmas is telling you is that God is great and you're not. That he's a savior and you're a sinner. That's what Christmas says to us. And what I love about this passage is that in, in this Old Testament passage, because so many people accuse the Old Testament of having no gospel, no grace. But in this Old Testament po uh, passage, there are so many threads of the gospel that it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how many threads of the gospel are in this passage. Look, look, if you go to verse 1 of chapter 9, look what it says here. One of the threads of the gospel is that there's a geographical thread. Because look what it says in verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are, who are in distress. Listen to this. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. So there's a geographical threat. The gospel even shows up in the geography of this story. Here's why. Because for, if you, back then, the, the people who were considered the lowest of the low in Israel were the people who lived in Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, so if you were a Roman citizen, the people that you looked down on were the Jews. But if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem, the people who you looked down on were the people who lived in Zebulun and Naphtali. And here's why. Because if you look at the way the map is established, Zebulun and Naphtali were at the most northern part of, the, of Israel's land. And so they were the ones that were on the border next to the Gentile nations. So many Gentiles lived in Zebulun and Naphtali. And so all the other Jews judged them because they were the worldly Jews. That's why in the passage it talks to them about being the, Gen the Galilee of the nations because all the nations lived in that region. And so everybody looked down on them. 
But not only were they the lowest people because of all the Gentiles that lived there, but in, later on in Isaiah, one of the reasons why Isaiah is writing this letter, this, 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 this book, is because he's warning the people because he's saying, listen, if you don't get your act together, God is going to send the Assyrians and the Assyrians are going to crush you. If you look at a map, Assyria was north of Israel. So the only way that Assyria could attack Israel was through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so what he's saying here is, listen, you are going to be humbled and you're going to be humbled again, but in the future, God will honor you. So think about this. If this isn't the gospel, I don't know what is. In the place where the enemy will attack is the place where the Savior is going to show up. In the place where they are most exposed is the place where God is going to bring protection. God shows up to the lowest people in the lowest region, and that's where he shows up. And so the place where the Assyrian army first steps into, the, into Israel, where the place where the, the military boot first steps into Israel is the same place. If you look later on in the passage, he talks about how um, uh, the, he says every warrior's boot used in battle will be destined for burning. So in the very place where the warrior's boot steps in is the very place where the warrior's boot will be burned. Because there will be no more reason to fight. Once, say, the Savior shows up, the war is over. You see, everyone said World War I is the war to end all wars. World War II is the war to end all wars. The war to end all wars was Jesus versus Satan, sin, and death, and he won the war. So we can burn the boots. We can put out the weapons because the battle is over. He's won. He's won. That's the gospel. So you see the gospel just all throughout this passage. The place where darkness was most prominent is where the light is dawning. And so you see this beautiful picture, even in the geography of the story, even in where the story takes place, you see the gospel. But I wish that was the only thread, but there's more. I feel like an info, infomercial, right? Like if there's, there's more. Wait, there's more. Look what it says next. In verses 3 through 5, he starts describing to us what this, this gift will look like in what this person will do. It says in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Then he says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Then in verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So, so you, in verses three through five, you get another thread of the gospel all, all within this passage because he's saying, listen, this gospel that this gift, this, this person is going to bring, it's so one way, it's so one-sided that it's like a harvest that you didn't plant, it's like a burden that you never carried, and it's like a victory that you never fought for. It's all about him. We don't do anything. It's so, it's so crazy. Because he talks about a harvest. If anyone understood a harvest in those days were those people, because these people, they, they would sit there and it would be just, they would, on, on pins and needles, waiting to see if the harvest would come. If the harvest would come, the joy that you would feel was just amazing because you knew you were set for the rest of the year. So he uses the harvest language to these people who are in an agricultural world to give them a picture of what it's like Jesus, for Jesus to show up and do everything in your place. 
So you see this beautiful picture of the gospel, this, this amazing thread through, through this narrative that, that Jesus, when he shows up, because of the gospel, it is like a harvest we didn't plant. It is like a burden that we didn't carry. And it's like a victory that we never fought for. That's what the gospel does for you and for me. And so if you really understand, Chris, if you really understand the gospel, if you really understand your need, you know that there's nothing you can do. But when you understand the gift and you understand there's nothing you have to do. The need tells me there's nothing I can do, but the gift tells me there's nothing I have to do. That's the gospel. And that's what we get here in this passage. But wait, there's more. Okay, there's more. Okay, go to back to verse 1. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 9. In verse 1 of chapter 9, we see another thread of the gospel. Because in verse 1, he, uh, he says, nevertheless. Now, we can easily just read past that verse. As a matter of fact, many pastors that preach this passage, they don't even read verse 1. They skip right to verse 2. But here's what's amazing about that word nevertheless. The reason why the word nevertheless is in there is because he is comparing and contrasting chapter 8 to chapter 9. So in chapter 8, we get a description of the darkness of humanity. But then he says, but nevertheless, there's light. The word nevertheless is the most important word in the whole passage. Because we all should have stayed. The story should have ended in chapter 8. We don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve anything from him. But the word nevertheless is a picture of his gospel. It's a picture of his mercy. It's a picture of his grace. See, that's why Christians, that's why Christians, here, here's how someone who doesn't know Jesus deals with, with the darkness. They deal with the darkness by trying to minimize it, by trying to cover it. The same way Adam and Eve do. Adam and Eve go, they grab a, 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 claw, a, a little leaf and they try to cover it up, right? That's how the world deals with darkness. They try to act like it's not there. But a Christian, because of that word nevertheless, we can embrace the darkness like nobody else. We can say, hey, hey, listen, listen, things are way worse than you ever thought. I am way worse than what you ever thought. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am fully loved and fully accepted. Right? And so if you're a Christian here today, what that means is there's nothing anyone can ever criticize you of that will crush you more than sin already has. So someone comes and says, hey, you're not good at this. And you're like, dude, you don't even know the half of it. I'm horrible. That's not even my darkest secret. Man, if I told you the whole thing, you, you, would, you, would, you would never talk to me again. But a Christian can admit the darkness because of the word nevertheless. Listen, I am fully sinful. I am fully wicked. I am fully dead. I am fully depraved. Nevertheless, I am fully loved, fully accepted, fully embraced because of Jesus. So I can admit my darkness because Jesus had to die for me. But I can admit my, my value because Jesus was glad to die for me. It's this beautiful balance that this, this passage gives us. And the last thing I want you to see before we conclude is this. The last thread of the gospel that you see here is if you go all the way to the end, verse 7, we get to see God's motive. This is beautiful. If this isn't the gospel, I don't know what is. At the end, the last sentence of the last verse, it says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so the question is, why would God do this? Why would God go through all this? And in the passage it says, it is the zeal of the Lord that makes him do it. Now when I was this morning, when I started reading this, if I were to be the one that wrote this, if I was Isaiah, I would put it's the love of the Lord or it's the mercy of the Lord or it's the grace of the Lord. But he uses the word zeal. So I got interested. interested. I'm like, what does the word zeal mean? So I looked in, 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 in the Bible and in, in my word study and what the word zeal means, the, the word zeal means jealousy. And you're like, jealousy? Why would the jealousy of the Lord do it? And then the more I looked at it, it says it's the type of love, it's the type of exclusive love that a husband expects from his wife. 
It's an exclusive love. You see, when we think of Jesus, we just think of a baby coming down to a manger. But according to Isaiah, we need to look at it as a husband coming after his wife. If you're sitting here tonight and you feel unloved and you feel unnoticed and you feel forgotten, in the gospel you have a spouse that crossed heaven and earth to come find you. And then he says, for to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. It's to us. He did it for us. He did it for us. That's why in Hebrews later on, in, in Hebrews it talks about how it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And when you look at that passage, you're like, what do you mean the joy set before him? He was in heaven with the angels, with his father. What joy could Jesus possibly had before him that he didn't already have behind him? He had everything. The one thing Jesus didn't have was you. He didn't have us. And so it was the zeal of the Lord that brought him because he loved us. He was a husband looking for his wife. That's what he came to do. The way that Hosea goes after Gomer is the way that Jesus comes after us. He came after us because he loves us, because he wants us. And so this means that Jesus, on the one hand, he's the greatest founder of any religion ever, but at the same time, he's the lowest founder of any religion ever. He's the greatest founder of any religion because unlike Buddha and unlike Muhammad, he's God, but he's the lowest because unlike those, he came into earth in order to rescue his bride. He did that for you and for me. And so tonight as you leave, here's what I want to encourage you with. Even though the bad news is way worse than what we thought, even though the need for Christmas is way worse than what we thought, praise God that the gift of Christmas is much more glorious than we could have ever hoped. Amen? Let's pray.